There's so many times the enemy tries to break religion down into rules and processes. And God says, I want you to look at my heart and know that his heart from the beginning was to create us, to make us, to love us. In Jeremiah 31, 31, he said he was like a husband to us. In the New Testament, it says he is like a bridegroom. He is like the bridegroom and we are like the bride. He wants us to know our hearts. And then to cover that there's a basic equipping for every saint. And we're walking through those right now. And there are really five things that I want to mention in that basic equipping. And the first we're talking about today, repenting of sin and being set free from the bondage of sin. Accepting Jesus as Savior. Accepting Jesus as Lord and King. Beyond accepting Jesus as your Savior, accepting Jesus as your Lord and King. Being baptized in water and being baptized in the Holy Spirit. Now in the scripture, these were for everybody. And there are examples in the scripture that go through and make clear that if you haven't had one of these, God intends for you to move in that area. There are examples in Acts, where both Paul and also Peter would go places and find people, and they had been baptized in water, but had not yet one time even heard of the Holy Spirit, and the other time they hadn't been baptized in the Holy Spirit. So Jesus means for these things to be our basic starting materials. Every Christian is supposed to have that. Not something that you get after 10 months on the job. Something you get right when you become a Christian. To accept the Lord that way. To be baptized in His Holy Spirit. And last week we talked a lot about sin. I, I, I said last week that I was talking so much about sin it just sounded like sin, sin, sin. And it gets very discouraging just talking about sin. Last time we went over lists of sin. And one of the reasons I wanted to highlight lists of sin is because some people say, well, I don't, really, I don't know what's wrong. I mean, I know the Ten Commandments, but what's the other stuff? And we went over lists of sins that are listed in the Bible. Very, very important that we recognize those things. And then we said that there were five characteristics of sins, and we got through two of them. So the five characteristics of sin are that sin deceives Sin hardens, sin entangles, sin enslaves, and sin kills. Okay, we're going to go through those. Last time we were together, we talked about the deception of sin, that sin deceives. In Hebrews 3.13, it says, Encourage one another day after day as long as it's called today, so that none of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. There is a deception of sin. Sin always comes along and says, I am going to fulfill you, and it never does. It's a lie. It's a deception, and we talked about that. And the second thing we mentioned was that sin hardens. Sin hardens. When sin abides in our life, abides. when sin abides in our life, we are hardened. And that which before looked terrible now looks like a possibility. That action that I would take, I was so ashamed of. Now I'm doing it regularly. When you start to lie, at first you go, ooh, that was bad. And after a while, you're just lying all the time. And you have lies to cover lies. And you're amazed that your parents could figure out that all those were lies. But somehow they knew. But sin hardens. I think a big example of it, too, is pornography. People go in and dip their foot in, then they get worse and worse and worse and worse. And then they're caught. So sin deceives and sin hardens. And one of the things about the deception of sin that I wanted to repeat was, when people are deceived, they don't know they're deceived. Because if they knew they were deceived, they would not be deceived. So he was deceived. You walk up to him and say, well, you know, I think you're really deceived here. The Word of God says this, and you're walking this other way. They don't know they're deceived, because if they knew they were deceived, they wouldn't be deceived. So the Scripture constantly refers to this as a veil being put over your face. That's all that they know. You know, Don was just recently sharing, he got cataract surgery, and those cataracts, before they were taken out, were like a veil. They blurred everything. But when that comes out clear, just talk to Don. He'll tell you what 2020 vision means. It's crystal clear. Kathy had the same thing. It's wonderful. You go from a veil being over your face. But people who have a veil over their face don't know they have a veil on their, over their face. 
because they haven't seen ever clear. They've always been deceived. Well, the third thing that sin does is sin enslaves. And Jesus said this in John 8, 34. He said, truly I tell you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. Is the slave of sin. When I first read that verse, I said, I don't like being called a slave. I just don't like that. People calling me a slave, I don't like that. But the Bible says if you commit sin, you're the slave of sin. Now, another great verse, and I, these two verses to me are very important memory verses. The other one is Romans seven fourteen, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold into bondage to sin sold into bondage to sin so sin enslaves and paul says i have been sold into bondage to sin now when we think of being in bondage or being enslaved it's something we go no not me i'm free i live in america i'm free it has nothing to do with living in america it has nothing to do with what we say the bible says if you let sin reside in your life you are the slave of that sin if you say, wait a second, I control this sin. Well, I'm traveling out to this house of prostitution. I have a woman lover there. I go home to my wife. She doesn't know anything about it. I tell her I'm going to the Masonic Lodge on Thursday night. She has no idea, and I go see this woman. I've got it in control. That is a lie. You cannot have sin in control. We do not enslave sin. Sin enslaves us. And it's very, very important because we react strongly to the fact that sin enslaves us. We don't like it. And that's one of the reasons Jesus told us about it. He said, if you sin, you're in bondage to sin. Sin does not sit off in the side and let you have a buffet dinner. If you partake, it has you. That's the way sin is. You know, there is no release for this bondage except the Lord. And we are in desperate desperate need of rescue from that because only the Lord can bring us rescue from sin and you know when when the angel came to Joseph before Jesus was born the very first thing that any heavenly body said about Jesus was in Matthew 121 and the angel said to Joseph in the dream she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins that's the first thing in the bible that was said by a heavenly being about jesus you'll call his name jesus which in the hebrew means savior because he will save and i like the word rescue he will rescue the people from their sins and you say well i'm in charge of my sins i don't need rescuing we're not in charge of our sins i think i've said it five times now very very important it's a huge deception. Sin enslaves us. We do not control sin. Sin enslaves us. When the world is caught in sin, the world is caught in sin. It is caught in sin. But praise the Lord, Jesus is the rescuer. And in John 18, 30, excuse me, in John 8, 36, it says, He whom the Son sets free is free indeed. And it's Jesus and only Jesus that can free us from sin. Otherwise, sin has got us. The other thing that sin does is sin kills. Sin kills. The Bible says in Romans 6, 23, For the wages or the result of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Sin kills. Sin kills even if we don't think sin is killing. It's killing. Helen and I had a little adventure at our house where these little critters started flying around. And I looked at that thing and I said, I sure hope that's not a termite. And we kind of squished one of them and took a picture and went on Google and it was a termite. Okay, you can find good pictures. There's ways to tell termites apart. One of the bad things about termites is they're behind the walls, tearing down the structure, and you don't see it. Sin kills, and many people don't see it. It's like termites in their life. It's destroying them, and then all of a sudden one day they're just whoosh, and they just fall. Sin kills. I was bothered one time. Um, there's a, 
a section of verses, I'm not going to read them all, but it's in Psalm 73, and it helped me with something that was really bothering me. In Psalm 73, verse 3 through 19, there's a description where it says, I was envious of the arrogant because they were being successful. The people who were violent were succeeding. The wicked were prospering. And this really, really bothered me. That's kind of the summary of the first 10 verses. And I didn't know what to do. And then it says, uh, once you get down to about verse 16 17, when I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of God. Then I perceived their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction, how they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Again, Psalm 73, 3-19. There was no discernment of how the wicked perish until we came into the sanctuary of God. And that is true of many things. When we stay on the outside and look at things and say, well, how can this be? And why is it that this person is stealing money and nobody's catching them? Why is it that this bad thing is going on in government and nobody seems to be able to put the fingers on these people and bring justice? Why do the wicked prosper? But the Bible says, when I came into the sanctuary of God, I could see it. That the Lord suddenly cuts them off to death and they are trapped with sudden terror. They are heading, heading, heading. Whoa! It's done. And that's what's going to happen. But it couldn't be seen until we came into the sanctuary of God. So many times, and I know many of you know this, when you come before the presence of the Lord, the Lord ministers in ways we do not understand. The psalmist says in Psalm 100, to come into his gates with thanksgiving, into his courts with praise, and to bless his name. Thanksgiving, praise, Bless his name. You want to come into the sanctuary of the Lord? Open up your heart. Give him thanksgiving, praise, and bless his name. The Holy Spirit will come and convict us of that which is not of God. Get that straightened out with God and stay in his sanctuary. And then when you're before the Lord, suddenly things become open that you could never see. Suddenly you see that God is not mocked that there is nothing that can stand up against him. You know, I'm, I'm probably going to use this as a demo, but I'll, I'll share this with you. I figured this out this week. So, John, this was my math project for the week. If you take a card, like a 3 by 5 card, and then you take a straight pin, and you stick the straight pin through the card and make a hole, and then you hold that up to the night sky. So that's a little tiny hole made by a straight pin. Can you all imagine that? You hold it two feet from your face, and you look up in the night sky, you'll have a little tiny, tiny hole there. If you take one one thousandth of that hole, have you got that now? A pinhole, now you take one one thousandth of that hole, and you shine it into the darkest part of space. They took the Hubble telescope and did that, and they took a picture for 23 days of what was completely black that was that size. Less than one one-thousandth of a pinhole held up here. After 23 days, they processed the film, or they didn't have film, but they processed the digitized image, and there were 5,500 galaxies in that little space. Each one of those galaxies had 200 billion stars. Complete darkness to us, but the further we can see, the heavens declare the glory of the Lord more and more, and the expanse of the firmament is a testimony unto him in Psalm 19. Unbelievable. But if we ever have the thought that somehow God's being tricked, somehow this thing is not going the right way, put that thought to the side. And the way you put that thought to the side is you enter his sanctuary. You recognize he is the God who spoke and created the universe, which is beyond our understanding. 
But it declares the glory of the Lord, and when we see His glory, it changes us. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, When we behold the glory, we are changed from one degree of glory to another as we behold His glory. So sin kills. And those that seem to be sinning and prospering are not headed in a good direction. So I actually just skipped along there. I skipped sin entangled. Okay, i got to go back to that one. Sin entangles. Some of y'all have been entangled before. When I was young, I uh, put some chewing, I took, put some, I think it was bubble gum. I was chewing some bubble gum at night, and I hadn't chewed it out. Now, I'm not saying this is smart, this is kind of dumb, but I don't, can't remember how old I was. But I said, there's more chew in that bubble gum. And so I put it up on my bedpost and went to sleep. Well, those of you who have done that before know that the sticky doesn't last all night, and it will drop. The next day I got up, and there was chewing gum in my hair. Now, chewing gum in your hair is just not pleasant. There's no good way to look at it. I do want to give you one testimony, though. The solution to chewing gum in the hair is scissors. It is not soaps and all that. That does nothing. You've got to cut it out and be bald, and that's just it. That's the way that you get it out. But it was very interesting because even a couple of years after that, when I met the Lord, my prayer of faith actually was involved that chewing gum or that bubble gum because I told the Lord that my life was so messed up, it was like bubble gum entangled in hair. And if the Lord wanted to try to fix it, he was welcome. And that was my prayer of faith. Not very much faith. But you know, God took the opening of a sliver of a door and he just came right on through, and he changed everything with that little tiny opening. But I'm telling you, think about bubble gum in hair, preferably women's hair, more hair, Susan's hair. That would be perfect. Think about that. That's what sin does. Sin entangles. A great scripture verse for this is in Hebrews 12.1. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Sin entangles. Sin, in the description, there was a description in Proverbs that's talking about a man who is being seduced by a harlot. And at first he resists, but in Proverbs 7, 22 and 23, it says, Suddenly he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter, or as one in fetters to the discipline of a fool, until an arrow pierces through his liver, as a bird hastens to the snare, so he does, not knowing it will cost him his life. It's like being ensnared in a net. And temptation is wild like that. Temptation can, is not just something that kind of moves along. The enemy will get you to a place and suddenly grab you and pull you down. Suddenly he has you and you're running towards death. Sin entangles. So when we leave sin in our lives that we know of, it's doing bad things to us. It's deceiving us. It's hardening us. It's entangling us. It's enslaving us, and it's killing us. We need rescue from sin. So I don't like to use the word stupid too much, but the stupidest thing we can do is let sin reside. Let sin reside. Now you just imagine that I had gone to Neiman Marcus. I don't know if we still have a Neiman Marcus, but they have really nice boxes. And I'd gotten a really nice Neiman Marcus box and it was wrapped up with the really good stuff. If it comes from Neiman Marcus, it doesn't look like other packages. And I came up to you and I said, here, this is a gift for you. And you looked at it and said, whoa, Neiman Marcus, this has got to be over $500, you know. I don't, I've never been in Neiman Marcus, but it's very expensive. Imagine if you opened that thing up and inside was a dead rat being eaten by maggots. Would you go, what a glorious present Let's take and exalt this rat on my dining room table where everybody can see it. No, you would be so upset because you had been deceived by the wrapping 
and the substance was death. That's sin. We are deceived by the wrapping, but the substance is death. And you would kick that out if I gave my wife a present like that. We might not even be married. You know, it would be that bad because I would be dead. (laughs) But the enemy is quite serious. He wraps it, and it's death. You see, the enemy only comes to steal, kill, and destroy. That's what he is constantly about. And you need to look on some. You can find some stuff on YouTube. You want to find horrible stuff. You can find horrible stuff. The enemy does things that are horrible, but he disguises even the smallest sin. We would call the smallest sin as acceptable, and that's what they deserve. You screamed at them, that'll make them a better person. No, Jesus wouldn't have screamed at them. That was a sin. We cannot let sin reside within us. So we went over lists of sin, but there's a special category of temptations that the Scripture lays out that's very much worth studying, and we're going to go through it right now. And it starts in 1 John 2, 15 and 16. And it reads, Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. Now this is very interesting saying, all that's in the world, and puts it in three different categories. It's very helpful for us because all the sins that are in our life fall into the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. But just to echo this all the way through Scripture, there are really good examples of this all the way from the beginning with Adam and Eve through the children of Israel to Jesus. And they're fairly explicit, and we're going to walk through them. The lust of the flesh is just plain. I think everybody knows what the lust of the flesh is. It's the deception that that which satisfies my body will fulfill me. It's the deception that if I had just more things that satisfied my body, then I would be fulfilled. I got one place in life where Helen and I went to an all-you-could-eat lobster thing that was just $25. It was just $25 for all-you-could-eat lobster. They were going out of business. Well, I can tell you for a fact that after a while, lobster doesn't even taste good. It doesn't even taste good. You just don't even want to put it in your mouth. But that first bite of lobster, you're thinking that'll never happen. Um, Carnal lust, sexual lust, rampant in our society. I mentioned this before, Covenant Eyes, which is a, a group that's on the web that deals with protection from pornography over the Internet said that one out of every five accesses to the Internet on mobile devices is for pornography. One out of five. It is horrible. In medicine, they've come up with sexual addiction. We didn't even used to talk about sexual addiction. Now it's a treatable disorder. I'm not saying it's treatable, but it's a disorder. They try to treat it just like um, uh, any other kinds of addiction. They say it's an addiction. They cannot disconnect from it. You don't think that the enemy is enslaving and entangling. He most certainly is. The lust of the flesh. The lust of the eyes. There's some really important things here. Because the lust of the eyes is just saying, if I had more money to buy more things, I would be happy. And you say, well, I don't believe that. But lots of people believe that that are Christians. A lot of people that say they don't believe that really believe that. My salary was just 50% bigger. That's all I would need. Then I would be happy. And that's the answer. But you know, the scripture lays this out all over the place. And we're going to cover these verses. In 1 Timothy 6.10, it says, For the love of money is a root, not the root, but is a root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. 1 Timothy 6.10. Hebrews 13.5, Make sure that your character is free from the love of money. Ecclesiastes 5.10, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. I don't usually quote Ecclesiastes. That may be one of three verses I use from Ecclesiastes. But he who loves money will not be satisfied with money. Proverbs 27.20 Nor are the eyes of man ever satisfied. The eyes of man are never satisfied. 
And, and talking about the last days in 2 Timothy 3.2, Paul says, For men will be lovers of self and lovers of money. He says in Luke 12.15, Jesus said, Be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even when you have an abundance does a man's life consist of his possessions. Not even when you have an abundance. I heard a very good radio announcement. A billionaire got on the radio. Not a millionaire, but a billionaire. And he said, the person who says that having plenty of money will make you happy does not have plenty of money. Because it doesn't. It may be a fair thing to say no one in this room is going to be a billionaire. That may be a fair statement. If you are a billionaire, let me know. We've got some things for you to pay for. No, no, but... A billionaire is a lot of money. That's a lot of money. That means you don't have to think about money at all, at all, at all. You have a billion dollars. This was a multi-billionaire. But he says, if you think it'll make you happy, you don't have that money. Because it doesn't make you happy. But the enemy, because sin is deceiving, constantly says, the thing you don't have is where happiness is. And it's always in the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. The last one was the pride of life. And I'm going to put a lot of emphasis on this because this is such a problem in our culture. The pride of life, thinking that we're great. Even when you're young and you're doing athletics or something like that, you might be the best swimmer in your class. You say, well, I can do a butterfly, or whatever they do up and down, how many times I'm the best one in my class. As soon as you say you're the best one in your class, there's someone sitting there going, yes. But in the class above you is John Smith, and he can go two-tenths of a second faster than you. You're not the best in the school. And then maybe you get to be a senior, and you have the school record, and you go, I beat out John Smith, and now I have the school record. There'll be someone sitting right there going, it's nothing to be the best in the school. You have to be the best in the county. And then you work your tail off and you become best in the county. And there's a voice there saying, it's nothing to be the best in the county. You have to be the best in the region. And if you went out the region, you've got to be the best in the state. And you're nothing if you've got the state until you take the nation. And the nation is nothing until you win the Olympics. And if you don't win the Olympics three times in a row, then it was just luck. Do you see? It does not matter how much pride you have. The enemy will tell you the next level is where there's satisfaction. The next level is where there's satisfaction. But it's not true. It's not true. It's a lie. If 15 people think you're important and you move up to 100 people thinking you're important, you're not happy. Because there's a voice there saying you have to have 500 people thinking you're important. The pride of life. John 5.44. Is a, there are two verses here I think that are extremely important. Jesus said, how can you believe, talking to the scribes and Pharisees, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another, but do not seek the glory that comes from the one and only God? Notice he started off with, how can you believe? How can you believe when you receive glory one from another, but don't seek the glory that comes from the one and only God? Most people in the United States and across the world live their entire lives seeking glory one from another. That's what they want. They want other people to say, what you, you're a great person, and don't seek the glory that comes from the one and only God. Jesus said you can't even believe if that's the way you are. And then in Luke 16, 15, Jesus said, You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men. But God knows your hearts, for that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable to God. That which is highly esteemed among men is detestable to God. And Jesus really jumped on him and said, you constantly work on justifying yourself with men. And you know, in Mark 7, 9, Jesus said, for you are experts at setting aside the command of God essentially setting aside the commandment of God for literally the culture of man or the tradition of man. So you say the way other people do it, we're going to do it that way. And I know God wants it done this way, but we're setting that aside because we're following after the tradition of men. 
And these were big things that Jesus said because he said to the, these to people that he was yelling at. And he was saying, you're supposed to be the religious leaders. You're supposed to be guiding people into the kingdom. Instead of guiding people in, you are blocking the door and keeping them out. And he said, these are the things that you're doing. So the scripture says the pride of life is a big deal. Another big deception, and this is in the church as well, is categorizing people and condemning them because they're in a category. So you might just say, well, everybody that lives on the other side of the railroad tracks over there, those people are just lazy. That's categorizing people. That's like saying, well, certain such denomination, they don't really believe the right thing, and so all those people have missed God. That's categorizing people. We tend, and our society excels at putting people into buckets. What are you? Who are you? What do you belong to? Are you a white male older than 50? Are you a Hispanic immigrant? We have buckets for everybody. And then we think about people in terms of what bucket that they're in. Now this is a serious thing. Jesus completely showed no distinction among people. No distinction at all. And there is a spirit of the enemy to bring in and make distinctions when we look at other people. That's why it's so important we look at the heart. It has nothing to do with the shell. It doesn't have to do with you have a long nose or a short nose. It doesn't have to do with whether you're blonde or brunette, whether your skin is dark or light or anything. It's the heart. The Bible says God looks at the heart and we are to be the way He is, looking at the heart. But the world categorizes people and then says things about them. Now, I might come up with something, you know, even if I was saying something about this group, I might say, well, let's call this group the Neo-Charismatic God-Loving Holiness Church. Neo-Charismatic, that sounds good. God-Loving, that sounds good. Holiness, I really like that. Church. Well, there isn't a bucket for that yet, but I'm going to let you know that if we were here two years, there would be a bucket for the neo-charismatic, God-loving, holiness church. People make buckets, and they say, this is them. Wherever you're in, people will try to put you in a bucket. And it's a spirit of the enemy. It's a spirit of the enemy to divide, because Jesus said that in him all things were one. In Galatians 3, it says, For there is neither slave nor free, rich nor poor, Jew nor Greek, for in Christ all are one. And the only distinction that there is in the New Testament is, are you in Christ or are you not in Christ? And those that are in Christ are Christians, and those that are not in Christ are not. And that is the singular distinction made in the New Testament. There is no other distinction among people in the gospel other than you're a believer or not a believer. Isn't that amazing? I hate to say it, but if it was left up to men... We would do it like the Boy Scouts. We would have whatever the Cub Scouts, then we'd have Weeblos, and Kathy, you're going to have to help me with this, but you'd have all the levels. And you'd say, okay, well, you're a Christian. Well, what are you? Well, I'm a second lieutenant Weeblow, you know, something. We would have a category for it. But God doesn't do that. There is no distinction in the Scripture, except in Christ and not in Christ. Isn't it an amazing thing? It's a great, great thing. And so when, when Jesus was talking, the Pharisee, he was talking to the Pharisees in Luke 18, 9, and this was when the Pharisee got up and prayed. Now listen to this prayer, because this is the pride of life. He said, two men went to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Swindlers, category. Unjust, category. Adulterers, category and even this tax collector category. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. And that was his prayer. Now think about what you think of that prayer. Just get in your mind, what do I think about that prayer? Was this person a pretty good person? What do I think about that prayer? But the tax collector, standing some distance away, 
was even unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven, wouldn't even lift his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And that's the whole story. And Jesus says, I tell you, the tax collector went to his house justified rather than the other. Meaning the tax collector was justified and the religious leader was not. And he says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. But do you hear that prayer? Dear these people, they're bad. These people, they're bad. These people, they're bad. These people, they're bad. I'm not in those buckets. I'm outside of those categories. I pay a tithe. I do my religious things. And he was prideful in front of the Lord. If you read about revivals, revivals are full of people falling down on their knees, crying out to God for mercy because the Holy Spirit has come and made known the wickedness of their sins. And the Holy Spirit will come to our lives and make known the wickedness of the pride of life. The wickedness of the pride of life. Now, I want to. There was enough. I don't want to get too much into Christians, but I do want to share this one part in First Corinthians, the third chapter. Paul in verse one through five, Paul is describing to the Corinthians that they're still babies in Christ, but he only uses one criteria. Just one criteria to say how I know you're a baby. And the one criteria that he used to say I know you're a baby is that some of you say I am of Apollos and some of you say I am of Paul and some of you say I am of Peter. And because you reference yourself to a person as a follower of a person, for that one reason I'm telling you you are a baby in Christ and I must feed you with milk rather than solid food. Nothing else. Just you attached yourself to a person rather than to the Lord and said, I am of Paul. What do you think Paul would do if he came in and found Pentecostal, Baptist, Presbyterian, Methodist, da-da-da, and he said, what are you? And he said, well, I'm a Methodist. He said, because you think that you're in a category I know that you are an infant in Christ. Now, that's pretty sobering. But it was only that one characteristic that told Paul, I know you're an infant, because you even think that way. And we have got to lift out of that. We look at a person, there is no distinction, except are they in the Lord? Can I help them be in the Lord? And that's it. And there is no distinction. I've heard people give testimonies and they say, well, I started off this and I was in the Baptist church this and then I went to this and I was in full gospel here and then I was over here and over here and, and now I think I'm kind of a this. But their whole description is to put themselves in a category. Do you see? And God's whole action is to get you out of the category and say you're in the best category. You're in Christ. And that is the singular place and there's not another place. So let all those other buckets go. All those other buckets go. I think... Um, Brother Miguel is going to share about some stuff with the Amish. Um, the Lord's really opened up some wonderful stuff here. Well, I found myself going, oh yes, the Amish. Let me tell you about the Amish. I know these six things about the Amish. And the Lord just slapped me upside the head and said, take your six things and flush them in the toilet. Don't you even do that again. He says, I'm going to the Amish. You just start praying for the Amish. Don't you think about anything about what the Amish believe or don't believe or where they came from or this. You just pray for them. Don't you think about anything else but do that. Because if you start thinking about people in categories and assessing people by their category, you are an infant in Christ. I don't care what you say. Paul says you're an infant if that's the way you think. Well, I was ashamed. I was ashamed. But what a great thing, we don't have to stay there. Just get out of there. Let's not do that. Let's just get out of there. So there's no distinction in Christ. And so, and you know, it's a very interesting thing because Peter said, Father, I thank you. Not Peter. Jesus said, Father, I thank you that you have hidden from the wise and intelligent these things and have revealed them to babes. 
Just the opposite of the way we think on earth, where we think people who are smart and intelligent, they've got this. And Jesus said, I thank you, you have hidden it from the wise and intelligent and revealed it to the babes. And Jesus even said, you cannot enter the kingdom of God unless you come like a little child. The pride of life is horrific. And it's most horrific in the United States. I always love, we get people from Africa, from CDC, and you get to talk to Christians in different other parts of the world. I know Miguel can tell a hundred stories like this. These people are crystal clear on evil and good. You talk about evil, they know there's evil. You're not convincing them they're evil spirits. They know they're evil spirits. And these people are very refreshing to talk to because they see God, they see Jesus as the rescuer and the single way to the Father. Jesus said he was forgiven much, loves much. And they know what that means. They're very clear on it. It's wonderful. We have so much pride of life in our country that oftentimes we won't let Jesus speak because he wasn't on the agenda. Do you know what I mean? Very, very important. I, I really love reading John Wesley's journals, but a lot of John Wesley's journals aren't distributed. But I was reading some this week. It was really good stuff. He goes, so I began to preach. One fell out, then another fell out, then a third fell out, then a fourth fell out, then a fifth fell out, as if dead. They laid on the floor. I discussed, and he just goes on and talks about his thing. He just says, I was preaching on there's a form of godliness, but deny the power thereof. He said, that was the preaching topic. But he just describes people slain in the spirit just when he gets up and speaks. He describes people being delivered from demons just when he's speaking. He doesn't know what's going on. He just said they were screaming so loud nobody could hear my voice. Eventually we ushered them to the side. But people were just screaming because the demons were acting up when the Spirit of the Lord came. You see, it's so important. We do not get caught in this pride of life. I, I'm laying it on thick because we are prided up way too much. We are prided too much. Another thing the Lord wants to do with us is to get rid of where we've been, predicting where we're going to be. He is always doing a new thing, and He is not encumbered by the baggage of our past. He is bringing us to a place that has never been. The Bible says the eye is not seen, nor the ear heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man the very thing that God has prepared for them that love Him. And that isn't just talking about heaven. That's talking about tomorrow, this afternoon, Everything. We have not seen nor heard or thought about it. And we are going to be in a place where we're doing the things Jesus did. And even greater things are we going to do. And that's going to happen. And we want to be a part of it. But we can't take and say, well, I know how this goes. You get people together, you do this. After a while it goes this. No. When God's involved, He makes all things new. And He makes everything new that's coming. We've got to have our hearts that way. So that we don't have the pride of saying, I know how all this works. We don't know how all this works. And the greatest testimonies that we have is how God maneuvers things and we never saw it coming left or right. And we see it all the time. God does that. So there's another pride of life example in the scripture in Isaiah 4, verse 1 and 2. It says, For seven women will take hold of one man in that day, saying, We will eat our own bread and wear our own clothes. Only let us be called by your name to take away our reproach. We will eat our own bread and wear our own clothes, but we want to be called by your name to take away our reproach. Now, seven in the Bible is often a number of completion. And this is what happens is that people take hold of Jesus and say, we want to do our own thing, eat our own bread, wear our own clothes, but we want to be called by your name to take away our reproach. Is that going on in this country today? All the time. People want to invoke the name of Jesus to justify what they're doing. They have no intent at all of following Jesus. Their only intent is to do what they want to do, but they want to be justified and proclaimed, and what does it say here? To take away our reproach. They want to be justified by invoking the name of Jesus. And what did Jesus say? Jesus said, in that day there will be people that come unto me and said, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do miracles in your name? And Jesus will say unto them, depart from me, you who act wickedly. Because these people, it's possible to invoke the name of Jesus and for the heart to be far away. Satan invoked the name of Jesus. 
Satan quoted scripture. He would even say the name of Jesus. Demons would say, you are the son of God. But it's our hearts. And he said, you who act wickedly, he said, depart from me. But interestingly, the next verse, verse 2, Isaiah 4, 2 says, But in that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious. Isn't that neat? There will be a day where people are just constantly invoking the name of Jesus to take away their reproach. But in that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious. Isn't that neat? Sitting in Isaiah. You have to keep reading Isaiah. There's a lot in there. Sitting in Isaiah. Okay? So that was a great pride of life example. Another one is in the church in Laodicea. In the church in Laodicea, when the Jesus came to the church in Laodicea, he said, when you look at me, you're not hot, you're not cold, it's lukewarm. But when you consider yourself, this is what you say. You say, I am rich and have become wealthy. This is in verse 17 through 20, Revelation 3, 17 through 20. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing... And that's what they say. We've arrived. We're doing our thing. We have got stuff going. We're in the right place. I'm in need of nothing. And do you know what Jesus described them? Because they were lukewarm to him. And that was the singular thing, was that they were neither hot nor cold towards him. Because of that one thing, Jesus said, you do not recognize that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Now, if you're describing all the way to the bottom, that's the bottom. You can't say any good thing about a person who is wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. That's the bottom. And that's the way Jesus described them. And he said, you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked because you are lukewarm towards me. That singular thing. You think you've got things going but you have nothing going. You're in a horrible state. And I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves. He said, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. So we quote Revelation 3.20 fairly often, and often we quote it about non-believers becoming believers. Actually, Revelation 3.20 was written to believers who were puffed up. And Jesus said, I am standing at the door. You don't let me in. I'm asking you, let me in, and I will fellowship with you. The pride of life in the church. And we're going to talk more on that a few months from now. But the pride of life is terrible. It is terrible, and it's something that we have got to be very faithful with the Lord and address in our lives when he shows us. I'm going to say years and years and years and years, God has dealt with me on this. Years and years and years. And the thing that changes you is beholding his glory. When you behold his glory, you can't think that you're great. But when you talk to everybody else, they're going to give you awards and accolades, and you're doing a good job on this, and you raised your kids right, or you raised your kids pretty good, or something. And you're going to go, well, compared to everybody else, I think I'm doing okay. One time the Lord showed me, I don't want to share too many of these, but he showed me an ant in the driveway. And the ant was talking to me and saying, I am the strongest ant in my whole colony. Compared to all the other ants, I'm the strongest one. And the next thing I saw was a foot with a shoe and just squinched that ant. And he may have been the strongest in the whole colony, but he was nothing. We have this idea that we're great amongst ourselves, but God is altogether holy and majestic, and we're going to spend eternity being marveled at his nature, marveling at his nature. This is something bigger than we can think. That's one of the reasons I like to share these universe examples, because they tilt your mind. Your mind can't hold that. Well, I can't hold all that. So we just put it aside and say, that's too big. That's the way God is. God is more wonderful than we can imagine. The very idea that God's confused or mocked is ridiculous. God has got this. So, in examples, when the scripture talks about examples of these temptations, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, these are big. The first one is in the Garden of Eden. 
And you know the story in the Garden of Eden, I'm not going to repeat it, but when the woman looked at the tree, it says in Genesis 3, 6, when the woman saw the tree was good for food, it was a delight to look at, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and she ate and gave to her husband and he ate. So what did she see in the tree? Good for food, the lust of the flesh, desirable to look at, the lust of the eyes, and desirable to make one wise, the pride of life. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, Genesis 3.6, sitting right there. And she participated, and we went downhill from there. And the result was not that she was satisfied and pleased and wise. The result was she was separated from God, and blessings were ripped away from Eve and her husband. It was a very, very bad thing. Huge deception, again, with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Now, the children of Israel are the second example. Now, in children of Israel, it's useful to read 1 Corinthians 10. I'm not going to read all those verses, but some of the verses in 1 Corinthians 10 and 1 through 6 read, For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And they were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And they all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now, if you're just a casual reader of the New Testament, this stunned me when I first read it. I would read the Old Testament. There was nothing in the Old Testament that I could find that said that the rock which followed them was Christ. There was a rock that followed them that issued water. Well, the Bible says that that was Christ. It says they were baptized in the cloud and in the sea unto Moses. Well, in that story, Moses and Joshua together are a type of Christ. Joshua, Joshua's name is Christ. Moses' name references to Jesus. Moses and Joshua together were a type of Jesus. He said you were baptized into Moses in what two things? In the sea, the water and in the cloud, the Spirit. So there's the baptism of water and the baptism of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. They were baptized, and you know the story of the, the blood that was put over the door being the spotless blood of a lamb, the blood of a spotless lamb. So this was a rescue by the shedding of the blood of the lamb, a baptism in water, a baptism in the Holy Spirit, ministry of Christ throughout all sorts of wilderness testing. And he said that this was written as an example to us as an example to us. So if you look in that story, a couple of things happened. And they were, of course, testings of those people while they were in the wilderness and continued testing even when they came into the promised land. Well, we shouldn't be too surprised that if the enemy's testings are in the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, it wouldn't be too surprising to go back and find that the children of Israel were tested in the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, which they were. So I just have three examples. Okay, so a lust of the flesh example is pretty good, where it starts in Numbers 11, 4 through 6. And it says, The rabble who were among them had greedy desires, and also the sons of Israel wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish that we ate freely in Egypt, the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. But now our appetite is gone. There is nothing at all to look at except this manna. Okay, man, of course, which was provided supernaturally by God, totally free, tasted like coriander seed. It was a nice, actually really nice stuff. I always liked that God sent twice as much on Saturday so that, well, the day before the Sabbath, he would send twice as much so you wouldn't have to collect on the Sabbath day. So they grumbled to the Lord. That's what it says in these verses. They grumbled to the Lord. And the Lord went out and did a crazy thing. I mean, an amazing thing, not a crazy thing. And he gathered quail. And he brought quail in and put them out from their camp a certain distance. I forget exactly the distance. And people went out and gathered the quail. And it was some astounding number that the person who gathered the least gathered like 30 gallons of quail. Some number like that. Huge number of quail. And then in Numbers 11, 33 and 34 it says, While the meat was yet between their teeth, before it was consumed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people and the Lord smote them with a very great plague. And that place was called Kibroth Hattava, 
which means the graves of sensuous desire, because there they buried the people who lusted, whose physical appetite caused them to sin. So right there in the story was the thing. If we can't have that which satisfies our body, we are revolting against God. And that was it. So that was the lust of the flesh. There was the lust of the eyes. When Joshua was taking the people into the promised land, one of the first people they came against was a king named Ai, A-I, I pronounce it I, maybe pronounced different. Joshua went right in there, took the guy on, and lost the battle. Went and cried out to the Lord and said, what is this? We lost the battle. How is this working? And it came back and, and God said to him, Israel has sinned in Joshua 7, 11, and 12. And they have also transgressed my covenant when I command them. And they have even taken some things under the ban and have stolen and deceived. Because God told them not to take things. Moreover, they have also put them among their own things. Therefore, the sons of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies, for they have become accursed. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy the things under the ban from your midst. And they went around and looked and found a guy named Achan, A-C-H-A-N, or Achan. And so he explained and he said, I saw among the spoil a beautiful mantle from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold, 50 shekels in weight. And I coveted them and I took them and behold, they are concealed inside my tent with the silver underneath it. And it, they had, Achan was killed for that very thing. Because the thing that he saw, that he coveted, and he took against the will of the Lord, killed the people of Israel. So that was the lust of the eyes. And then the pride of life is the story most of you know of what happened to Moses coming down with the Ten Commandments and Aaron left amongst the people and Aaron made a golden calf. And I'm not going to read that whole story because I know most of you know that story. But the interesting thing of it was that when he had taken a graving tool, it says, and molded the golden calf, Aaron said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. That's what Aaron said. This is your God, O Israel. This thing which I have made with my hand is your God that brought you out of Egypt. The pride of life. Unbelievable. Now, we talked about how sin messes us up and entangles us. Well, I, I definitely want to let you know that when Aaron was confronted, he did not fess up. He did not come to the Lord and said, I have sinned against you. When Moses brought this to Aaron's attention, when he came down in the 22nd verse, Aaron said to Moses, Do not let the anger of my Lord burn. You know the people yourself. What they are how they are prone to evil. For they said to me, Make a God for us who will go before us. For this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. I said to them, Whoever has any gold, let them tear it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it in the fire, and out came this calf. You see? Because sin leads to sin. Sin leads to sin. Lies lead to lies. When you jump into the pride of life, you're going to begin sinning in lots of other areas because you're allowing the pride of life to sit in your life. And it kills and enslaves and hardens. And I don't even know if Aaron knew he was lying because he was so hardened by what has happened. And then the Lord sent a plague, and the sons of Levi killed 3,000 men, and there came a huge plague among the people. Every time the children of Israel engaged in the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, or the pride of life, those who did were killed, representing death. Sin does the same thing for us. The Bible says that sin kills. Sin separates us from God. The true definition of death is separation from God, not what happens to our physical body but separation from God. That's why death and hell are mentioned together. That's why that is, because hell is where God is not. And God is here. He has not left the earth. But in hell, God is not. So that was Adam and Eve, the children of Israel, and we're just going to finish up with Jesus and we'll be done. So Jesus was also tempted. So Jesus was tempted in Matthew 4. You all know this story as well. 
But it says, He became hungry, and the tempter came to him and said, If you're the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered them and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. The first temptation was to satisfy the flesh. Bread. The devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on a high pinnacle and said, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, On the other hand, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. If you are the Son of God, prove it. Cast yourself down. Because if you are the Son of God, these things will happen. The pride of life. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory and said to him, All these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Go, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord your God and serve him only. He took him to a high place and showed him everything glorious in the world and said, You can have it, the lust of the eyes. So Jesus overcame all temptation, and he overcame this session of temptation with the enemy. But the Lord wrote the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life in multiple places in Scripture so that we are absolutely clear on how devastating and bad these things are and we reject them from our lives. Nonetheless, way too often, Christians, non-Christians, welcome the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, joyfully. They just welcome it in because they do not hate sin, they play with sin. We talked last week about how it was so important that we hate that which is evil. In Romans, he said, to abhor that which is evil. In Hebrews, it says, Jesus received the oil of gladness above his brethren because he loved righteousness and hated iniquity. That hating sin is not live in Christians today. We play with sin. We tolerate it. We even chuckle at it. We even chuckle at it. It's a terrible thing. But if we are not going to choose the Lord our God, sin is going to be a companion. But if we choose the Lord, sin has got to be repelled. It's got to be repelled. Now, our entire culture is trying to push this thing of there's not really a right and wrong. There's not really something that you can truly believe in. Everything's got problems. Everything's kind of a mishmash. I'm okay. You're okay. Let's coexist. God could not be further from that. God alone is holy. The singular path to Him is the Son. We are called and rescued by the Son that we might have fellowship with Him. Fellowship with Him means the hating of that which is evil and recognizing how horrible sin is. Now, that's the last section on sin. I'm really looking forward to the next talk because the next talk talks about how wonderful the rescue is that Jesus made from sin. Make sure you're here for that, because I've had to go through two sessions talking about how bad sin is. We need, though, to have live in our hearts that sin is bad. But what a great lesson it's going to be, great talk to talk about how thoroughly Jesus came and defeated and stepped down and took on his body the punishment necessary that we be set free. And we're going to go over about 20 verses on that next time. And they're all great, great, great verses that lift up Jesus. But it is very important as we lift the Lord up this way that we recognize there are many things in our life we've just let sit there and the Lord wants it totally cleaned out. Uh, Helen's sitting here. It's a little bit embarrassing when I tell things with Helen sitting here. But when we first got married... I had an idea about what a clean bathroom looked like. And Helen instructed me over the years of what a really clean bathroom looked like. Well, mine was a measure, but Helen really cleans a bathroom. I think y'all know, most of the women here know what I'm talking about anyway. Mine was more external, the part you kind of deal with. Helen was behind the toilet, everything. When Helen cleans a bathroom, it's clean. Okay, many Christians are messing around with clean, calling things that have got a lot of dirt in them still clean. 
looking at Christians' lives saying, oh, you can be that way, you can be that way. I hear people say, Jesus still loves me. Jesus still loves me, and then they confess the sin that they're in. But it's okay because Jesus still loves me. Do you know what he said in that chapter in Revelation 3? He says, those whom I love, I discipline. That's what he said. Those whom I love, I discipline. Therefore, repent. But I'm telling you, if we turn away the day of our visitation of the Lord, and he comes to us and he calls on us to repent, and we are stiff-necked, God's most serious criticism of the Jews, of Israel in the Old Testament, was they were a stiff-necked and stubborn people. That's what he said. You're a stiff-necked and stubborn people, and you do not deserve to go into the promised land. And I am not taking you into the promised land because of your righteousness, but I am driving these people out because of their sin. And he waited 400 years till the sins of the Amorites were complete. And he said, they are so sinful, I am cleaning out that land, but not because of your righteousness, because you are a stiff-necked people that resist me. So when the Lord comes, it's very important we welcome him and let him come in deep and take away things that we have not called dirt, but he's calling dirt, and let him clean those things out. Let's bow our heads. Jesus, thank you for the revelation of the, hor the horribleness of sin. Work in our hearts that we hate sin, that we hate evil, and that we don't play or touch it, but we get rid of it in our life. Thank you for being the one who sets us free. And Jesus, I ask this, that you make these things real to us beyond the hearing of the ear, but let the Spirit of God write these things in our heart, that when we come across these things in our lives and the lives of others, that, Lord, we come to you straightway to confess our sin and straightway to pray for others that are in bondage to sin, not with a judgmental heart, Lord, but with the same heart that Jesus had, that he loved and cared for us even while we were yet sinners. In Jesus' precious name, amen.